week that uh, they are a demonstration of who God is. Uh, I suggested to you that uh, God in his own word in the text says the reason for the plagues, one, is to reveal who he was to the Israelites, secondly, to reveal who he was to the Egyptians, and thirdly, to bring judgment on the Egyptian gods, these false gods. And as we read these plagues and and read the text, uh, it's important for us because we live several thousand years removed from all of this. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, certainly you've read these accounts and and we can read them and they become kind of uh, matter of fact to us. You have to try to place yourself in the context of Egyptian culture, as difficult as that may be, uh, to begin to grasp the import of what uh, these events were all about. God is, by his incredible grace revealing himself in powerful ways and he is by extension showing us some glimpse of what he has rescued us from these plagues among other things represent uh, terrible terrible distortions from one perspective in terms of creation the plagues represent, in, 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 a, in a sense, a, a deconstruction of creation, the order of creation. It's like we have in our life, we, we have a, an idea of how things should go. They should go in an orderly manner. And when things don't go that way, uh, we have all sorts of difficulties, problems, questions, and so forth. And this is part of also the whole dilemma with the plagues is that they represent really a a deconstruction, creation in chapter 1, and now God is decreating, if you will. He's showing people how chaotic things can become when they're out of order, how chaotic life can be when we don't honor him, when we don't acknowledge him, when we don't worship him. First, First chapter of Romans says much the same thing. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth through their wickedness. So these are very, very instructive chapters. We look at some of the details of the plagues. But in the greater context, the reality is that we we should step back and, again, uh, be renewed in our awe for God, our worship of God, you are an awesome God. You are a mighty God. You, you are sovereign over everything. And if the truth be known, I must acknowledge that. And I must humble myself before you because you are a good God and your purposes are good, pleasing, and perfect. Part of our dilemma is always we question God, we judge God, we judge what happens, we end up wagging our finger and accusing him, if not out loud, certainly down deep inside. Rather than a quiet submission that arises from a quiet trust, a a quiet confidence. God, I don't understand this, but I know you understand it, and I trust you. That's not a fatalism. That's a confidence. That's an active confidence in a living God. 
who is working out his will. He is in control, and he is sovereign. And we dare not kick against the goads. Amen? Amen. So let's look at these chapters. We're going to begin in chapter 7, verse 14. Aaron, you recall, Aaron and Moses had, at, at God's command, gone back to Pharaoh. And uh, they were to give Pharaoh once again God's word, God's command, let my people go that they may worship me. But not only do they go with the command, now they go with power. They go with a demonstration of God's power. The demonstration, remember, was Aaron's staff was thrown to the floor in the palace, turned into a serpent, And Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers duplicated that. They threw their staffs down, and their staffs too became serpents. So as far as that was concerned, there was no difference. The difference came, however, when Aaron's staff gobbled up the staffs of the magicians. That would get my attention. This is a more powerful staff. This is a more powerful snake, cannibalizing the other ones. It was symbolic to Pharaoh because the serpent, remember, represented the power of, of Pharaoh, the power of Egypt. The serpent was a symbol of that. And so here is Aaron's serpent, Aaron's staff, overpowering, devouring the power of Egypt and the power of Pharaoh himself. What an object lesson. But we know at that event, Pharaoh nonetheless hardens his heart. He will not listen. He will not let the people go. And hence, now the plagues will commence. The first plague is the plague of water to blood. It's instructive, I think, that we remember what Proverbs says. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord. It kind of gives your life perspective when you fear the Lord, when you fear God. Ask yourself this question, do I have a healthy fear of God? Ought I fear God? Now when I talk about fearing the Lord, I'm not talking about about cringing. An awesome, healthy respect and fear of the living God. Do I have that in my life? The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, by the way, I alluded to this, I shared one of these verses with you last week, in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Paul talks about God's kindness and how people uh, ignore his kindness. This is a marvelous passage. He says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? When someone is kind to us, we may be at odds with them, but when they're kind to us, that's, that brings, it has a softening effect, doesn't it? And it does lead us in the direction of repentance. And so the same principle holds true. And, and Paul is just saying, uh, he's saying, do you show contempt for his, his, his patience, his tolerance, his kindness? Not realizing that it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. And then he says, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness, and this can certainly be applied to Pharaoh, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. 
And so there's a, there's a strong message there in the person of Pharaoh. We see what happens when a man hardens his heart. We see when a, what happens when a man is unrepentant. Now, as we look at these passages and these plagues, we're going to see that the, the effect of these plagues on his life and on his heart. The first plague, again, is water to blood. Let's read about, let's read about it. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you to say, Let my people go so they may worship me in the desert. How many times do you think Pharaoh is going to have to hear that command? I mean, I'm getting tired of reading it. (laughs) Let my people go so they may worship me in the desert, but until now you have not listened. Now here's the key verse in the passage, verse 17. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. By this you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am God. Not all your gods. You're not God. See, there was a battle here because Pharaoh believed he was a god and the people of Egypt believed he was a god. So now there's this pitched battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we'll see which god is the more powerful. It's a contest. Not really a fair one, but nonetheless it's a contest. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile. It will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, over the ponds, over all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and the stone jars. That is not a very pleasant thought. Some scholars believe that it wasn't really blood. They believe that it was just red silt washed down at a time of the flooding of the Nile. And uh, historically, that would happen. It would give the Nile the color of red, the color of blood. But I believe that it was actually blood because the word says blood. Okay, so I'm not going to explain it away. I'm going to believe in the miracle. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish of the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink water from the river. Why is this the first plague? Think about that. Why is this the first plague? Is there something significant about the Nile and the changing of the waters of the Nile into blood that would make it the first act of God's judgment on Egypt. Well, there are a number of things to examine, a number of things to consider. One, there is a parallel here. And the parallel is between this plague and the death of the Egyptian army recorded in Exodus chapter 14. 
And the parallel, very simply, is this. The beginning and the end of Israel's deliverance is with a mighty act of God and water. The very first act of deliverance is this miracle, and the last one is where the army of Egypt dies in the water of the Red Sea. There's a parallel there. There's another consideration. If you go back to Exodus chapter 1, you recall that the Nile was the means Pharaoh used to exterminate the Israelite male children. So now the Nile would, in effect, be turned against them, no longer a source of life to Egypt, but a source of death. It's judgment. In fact, there's a, one of the books of the Apocrypha, there, the Apocrypha are, are a number of books during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. They're not included in the Protestant Bible. But if you have a Catholic Bible or one of the other ones, you'll know this. there's a, a number of books in between. It's, those are called the Apocryphal books. One of them is called uh, Wisdom of Solomon. Now, they're not, they're not biblical in the sense of, that we understand them. They're not scripture. But many of them are, are historical, and they contain historical accounts and references. And in one of them, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, it speaks of this first plague as a, quote, rebuke for the decree to slay the infants, unquote, back in Exodus chapter 1. So there was in, in Jewish histor- history and tradition, there was this sense that this first plague on the Nile was in fact God turning the Nile against the Egyptians. It was no longer a source of life, as they had believed, but now it's a source of death. And it harkens back to the occasion when uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians killed the male Israelite children. There's another one, and and this is uh, Egypt's greatness as a civilization was wholly dependent on the life-giving waters of the Nile. Now, all of the the Egyptian people, they they didn't live spread out all over the land of Egypt. Most of the land of Egypt was desert. And so they would live along the boundaries of the Nile because when the Nile would overflow its boundaries at times of inundation in the spring floods and such, then it would, uh, that water would irrigate all that land adjacent to the, to the banks of the Nile. That's where the people lived and farmed. So the concentration of the population was along the sides of the Nile, the banks of the Nile. And uh, in the Nile, indeed, was uh, a tremendous source of prosperity. And so... Uh, an attack on the Nile, in this physical sense, was really an attack on Egypt itself, on its economy, on its ecology, every aspect of it. It really was an omen of what was to come. Judgment would fall on the Nile, God was bringing judgment on the Nile, and hence judgment on the nation of Egypt and all that it stood for. And fourthly, the Nile was personified and worshipped as a god in Egypt. So again, an attack on the Nile was an attack on Egypt's gods. And the preeminent god would be the Nile. And the Egyptians depicted the Nile. Uh, the god of the Nile was, was known as Happy, H-A-P-I. And uh, the image that they designed or they drew uh, was a fat man with the breasts of a woman. That's how they depicted the god of the Nile. Uh, we are amazing in terms of, of how we uh, make our idols, aren't we? A fat man with a breast wound. Who would ever think of that? 
And it was a depiction of the powers of fertility and nourishment. The Nile was, would bring fertility to the land. It would nourish the land and so forth. And so here's an attack on the gods of the Nile. Now again, verse 17 uh, tells us that Pharaoh and all of Egypt would know this one thing. When God brings this plague, they would know, God says, that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And notice verse 22. The magicians were apparently able to duplicate this miracle, this act, by their secret arts. I have a question. If they're able to exercise magic, which apparently they were able to do, why did they add to the misery by bringing more blood? Why didn't they reverse the blood back to the water? That would seem logical to me. If I had magicians who had power, I would turn to them and say, reverse this puppy. But they don't. They're not able to. Verse 21 tells us there was blood everywhere, all over the place. And again, uh, I'm going to suggest to you that it was literal blood. Every aspect of Egyptian life, every aspect of Egyptian life was disrupted. Uh, I recall when... Uh, Back in the, uh, was it 70s, we had the gas uh, shortage and, and gas lines and stuff. I mean, I remember having to get up at 4 in the morning, go drive my Volkswagen to get to the gas station, to park it, to wait till the guy opened up to get gas. And there was a, there was a huge disruption. That's just with gasoline. Imagine, imagine the very source of the life of your culture being affected. Disrupt every aspect of your life and of your culture. Ecologically, sociologically, economically, uh, religiously, everything now was under attack. Utter, utter disruption of a person's day-to-day life. Indeed, the day-to-day life of the entire nation of Egypt. No fish. All the fish in the Nile were dead. And so the fishing industry died. People didn't have, I mean, the food supply was limited now. The economy was affected because they couldn't catch the fish to sell the fish. No fresh water to irrigate their crops. The religious system under attack. You know what it's like when all of a sudden uh, someone attacks you, attacks your faith, attacks God, and poses questions and challenges that would seem to undermine your faith. You don't have an answer for them. And all of a sudden you're going, well, well, I don't know. A lot of our college students will come out of church and they'll go to college and, the, and, and what goes on in all of our colleges are the, are the professors committed, committed to undermining faith. Committed to a secular culture and a secular worldview. Utterly committed. And I can't tell you how many kids go to college, they grow up in a Christian home, they grow up in, a, in the church, and they go to college, and their faith is lost in college. Now, that has a lot to say about the church and equipping, and families equipping them for college, but nonetheless, you understand what it's like when your faith is under attack and how easily sometimes it can be undermined. And so this was happening to the Egyptians So the the whole religious system was under attack. No confidence. No hope. The Nile. 
a source of power and life, is in chaos. Not to even address the smell. <laughs> smell was horrible, and everybody lived right along the Nile. You couldn't get away from it. I remember when the red tide first came in years ago, and I was a, a young fellow, and, and, and I'd never experienced a red tide. And years ago, the red tide first came in, it was horrible. The smell was horrible down the beach. No one wanted to go to the beach. Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder now. He returned to the palace. He refused to heed this judgment. Wouldn't even take note of it. Presumably, the magical arts of his magicians gave him just the excuse he needed. They could duplicate it. It was just another trick, just kept on a larger scale. So he didn't need to pay attention to it. The Nile River was the lifeblood of Egypt. But it had to be water to be the lifeblood. Now that the river is blood and becomes death to them. What had been a blessing in Egypt is now a curse. And this is simply God's judgment on Egypt. So we have the flood, we have, or not the flood, we have the, the Nile turning to blood. In uh, verse 25 of chapter 7, it says, Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Scholars are unsure as to the length of the plagues. Most seem to think that the, the, the total length of the plague was probably about a six-month span of time. So now it's been seven days. The Nile has been blood for seven days. We don't know that it was changed after that or not. Presumably it was. But then comes the second plague. You would think that turning the Nile into blood should convince Pharaoh to comply with God's command, wouldn't you? But it doesn't. So the second plague, and I think the second plague is fascinating, frogs. Who would think of frogs? A plague of frogs. Frogs, seemingly innocuous little creatures, tiny little things, no big deal. How would they be a plague? Well, let's read it. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. And then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may worship me. There's the command again. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom, onto your bed, onto your, into your houses of your officials and on, on your people. I don't know about you, but I remember when I was a little kid and we lived in a neighborhood with a lot of, a lot of kids and a lot of boys in the neighborhood and a few little girls. We used to love to chase the girls with frogs. They go, ew, ew, ew. We get the biggest kick out of that. Ew, look at the frog. That was just one frog. <laughs> They'll be into your houses, of your officials, on your people, into your ovens, kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and on your people and on all your officials. And then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts and they also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord 
to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Again, a reference to God. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he kept his promise. He hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. The plague of frogs is the first plague to unleash the animal kingdom on human victims. You see a complete disruption of the order of creation here. Now the animal kingdom is going crazy. There is a picture here of the book of Revelation when all of nature reverses its order and goes berserk. God releases the order and you have chaos in the book of Revelation. This is just a portent of things to come. And the frogs are not just here and there. They're everywhere. They're in the bedrooms. They're in every nook and cranny. They're in the closets. They're in the kneading troughs. They're in the ovens. They're clinging to people. They're in their clothes. They're not just cute little animals popping up out of the sock drawer. They're everywhere. And they're a threat. They're a threat to sanitation. And when they begin to die in verses 13 and 14, their rotting bodies not only send up a horrible stink, but they're also a public health catastrophe. Rotting bodies of frogs in heaps and piles. The, the odor, the smell is horrible. Frogs are everywhere, everywhere. And remember, the relevance of this is it's an attack again on the Egyptian religious system. This is the goddess of childbirth. Frog represented the goddess of childbirth was depicted in Egyptian art with the head of a frog. Isn't that lovely? Her name was Heka, H-E-K-A. And the plague of frogs can be understood again as an attack on the Egyptian fertility goddess for the Egyptians' previous efforts at exterminating the Israelite male children in Exodus chapter 1. Note also where the frogs come from. They came from the Nile. Nile is the source of the first two plagues, which again is a fitting retribution to Pharaoh for using the Nile against the Israelites. So God is really focusing in on the Nile in these first two plagues. And the question would come up in verse 7, why would Pharaoh's magicians want to increase the frog population and add to Idris' ministry? You would think that if they had any power, significant power at all, they would reverse this thing and diminish the number of frogs rather than say, we can do this too. Look, more frogs. Great. Thanks, magicians. You're the CEO, and your help can only make the problem worse. Think about that. 
And it's only after this double dose of frogs, in verse 8, that Pharaoh asks for help. Pharaoh kind of says uncle and gives a little bit. Now remember, the frogs were symbolic of Egypt's goddess of fertility. And as such, the people couldn't kill them. Because if you killed this frog, which was symbolic of the goddess of fertility, that was a capital crime, and you too would die. Probably people wanted to die anyway. So the people simply just had to endure this plague of frogs. Frogs everywhere. You get up in the morning, there's frogs in your bedroom. There's frogs in your bed. There's frogs in your shower. There's frogs in your sink. There's frogs in your drawer. Frogs on your toothbrush. (laughs) Frogs everywhere. They're just everywhere. And if you're the least, least bit squeamish, this would only make it worse for you, wouldn't it? And not only frogs, but everything the frogs would leave behind is everywhere. It is not a pretty scene. How many like things nice and neat and clean? How many are neatniks? Drive you crazy. They couldn't get rid of them. Now we see the first sign of Pharaoh's weakness. He apparently believes that only the God of Israel has the power to get rid of the frogs. So he calls Moses and Aaron and says, pray that the frogs will be gone. Pray to the, to the Lord to take the frogs away. And Moses gives Pharaoh the choice of when the plague will stop. And interestingly, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. I would say, yesterday. A-S-A-P. And really the Hebrew can be translated either way. And the NIV chooses to translate it as tomorrow. It could be translated very simply uh, as soon as possible. And that would be the logical answer, wouldn't it? When do you want the frogs to be gone? Today, get them out of here. So in verse 12, Moses intercedes. God listens. The frogs die, and they die basically where, right where they are. They're piled into heaps. And they begin to stank. The deliverance is no better than the plague itself. And the heaps of frogs piled up would point to another event. In chapter 14 and verse 30, the heaps of Egyptian military personnel, soldiers who would be lying dead on the shore of the Red Sea they too had come up out of the water as the frogs had come up out of the This is judgment. Not only looking to the past, but looking to the future. This should be a lesson for Pharaoh, but Pharaoh did what? Verse 15? Hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. You and I, we just read this and we shake our heads and say, how could you possibly, possibly harden your heart after this? And yet people do that, don't they? People just dig their heels in. There's a difference between being persistent and being stubborn. As soon as the plague is out of sight, it's also out of mind. The chastisement of God was now forgotten. The convictions that came with it wore off. The promises that he made were unfulfilled. The pain of the suffering 
had faded. The fear of judgment had passed. We've made it through. We've made it through. And the heart became hard. How often people cry to God for deliverance. How often people cry to God, Lord, deliver me, save me, and they make all manner of promises. God, I'll do whatever you say. I'll do whatever you want. Yet how many actually do follow through with their promises? How many shamefully abuse the mercy and the patience of God as we saw in Romans chapter 2? How many truly repent and turn with renewed vigor and commitment to the Lord? How many remember? Did the pain and the suffering fade from their memories? Did the convictions wear off? Were the promises made forgotten? These are important lessons for us, would you agree? Each one of us. Each one of us. Well, he's hardened his heart. That will open the door to the third plague. This is the plague of gnats. Lovely. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of a god. A god, not the god. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Now, the third plague, the plague of gnats, comes without warning. The first two plagues, Moses and Aaron had gone to Pharaoh and they'd warned him. First out by the Nile and then in his palace. Now the third one comes without warning. It simply happens, if you will, as a quick blow following on the heels of Pharaoh's stubbornness. Jesus says that no man knows the day or the hour when God's judgment will come. Not the angels in heaven and not the Son of Man, the Father only. No one knows. No one knows when God's judgment will come. It will come suddenly as a thief in the night, we're told. Should we be prepared? And this judgment symbolically comes without warning to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Now our text calls this particular plague, a plague of gnats. All of you know what a gnat is, right? It's a pesky little thing that just flies around and you can't catch it. No one's really sure exactly what the insect is. It's translated gnat. It could also be uh, lice. Doesn't that sound good? Now, the picture here is he, he, he hits the ground with a staff and you know, how, you know how dust, clouds of dust come up? And when you're in a cloud of dust, you close your eyes, and you cover your mouth, you close your nose, because dust gets everywhere, doesn't it? Penetrates everywhere. So now we've got clouds of, not dust, clouds of these nasty, nasty insects, whatever they are, lice or gnats, crawling into the eyes and noses and mouths of all the people and all the animals. As the dust covers the ground, so do these insects swarm through the air and just get all over everybody. 
You open your mouth to inhale, and you get a mouthful of gnats. <laughs> Again, the plague targeted the Egyptian god Geb, G-E-B, the god of the earth. And Geb was credited with the health and plenty of Egypt's crops. In the plague of the gnats, rather than lush crops emerging from the earth, thick swarms of disease-bearing insects rise from the dust to torment the people. Not crops, insects, to torment the people. Now, the first two plagues came from the water. They came from the Nile. The water turned to blood, and the frogs came up out of the Nile. This plague, the third plague, comes from the land, from the dust of the ground. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, tells us that man was formed from the dust of the ground. Follow my line of thought here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God says, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Dust, in that sense, represents death. These gnats are more than a nagging discomfort. They are a sign of human mortality. The dust to which all flesh must return becomes an instrument, if you will, that speeds the Egyptians on toward their end. This is, by the way, the last plague where Aaron takes an active role. From now on, it will be Moses taking the lead. It will be Moses speaking, Moses doing everything. It's kind of a reminder of John the Baptist and Jesus. John says, I must decrease, so he must increase. Aaron will decrease, Jesus will in, or, uh, Moses will increase. And this is also the first plague that Pharaoh's magicians are not able to duplicate. All of a sudden, they're out of their league, if you will. The question is, why couldn't they duplicate this one? Well, there's probably a number of reasons. One, maybe God just wouldn't allow them to do it. But if you recall, the first two plagues concerned the water. The water of the Nile, which was the life and the power of Egypt. You say, now how could the Nile be the life and the power of Egypt? Well, we know that it was the life of Egypt because it provided crops, water, food, everything. But it was also worshipped as a god. There is power in idolatry. There is power in the demonic realm. This is why cultures and nations worshipped idols. When the, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, when you turn from the one true God, you automatically turn to idolatry. We are made to worship something. And there is power there. I had a conversation with a man uh, just this last week about his, the, the power and the grip of pornography in his life. There are more men than we care to admit who are plagued, who are under the power and the grip of pornography in the church. Not, only, not just in the world, in the church. Men living secret lives, they're worshiping at the altar of idolatry, the altar of pornography. It is powerful. And so when you're, when you're a pagan sorcerer, when you're a, a godless individual, and you are in that culture, and you worship these idols, 
You are giving yourself wholly over to their power and their control. Behind the idols are demonic forces, demonic beings who have power. And so the Nile really is an object of idolatry and worship. The, the Nile and the, and, the, and the spiritual forces behind that really do impart power to people to keep them under their control. Satan is not at all pro- troubled by, by giving you power as a trade-off to keep you under his deception. People don't want to give up control. We love to have control, don't we? We love to have control. To surrender to God, to trust God, to not panic and freak out, freaks us out sometimes. And so you can understand the, how, the, how, how the, the dark side, if you will, will cater to that fleshly desire and need if, in our life to grant us power and control. The magic arts were empowered by the Nile. They were empowered by the forces of idolatry behind it. But with this third plague, the magicians literally are out of their element. You see, the God of Israel is the God of all of creation. The gnats came from the dust of the ground, not from the Nile. Though they worshipped the earth and they worshipped the God of the earth, they didn't do so as they did the God of the Nile. And so now God, God represents here, see, look, look what I can do. I can, I'm the God of all the, all the creation, not just the Nile, not just the water, but of the earth also. The power of the magicians, gods, is limited. The false prophets of this world, the false teachers of this world, cannot stop God's judgment. It's just like the, the, the magicians back then, the sorcerers, they could not stop God's judgment. Nor are they able to deliver people from it. There are lots of promises being made to people. Lots of promises being made by false teachers and false prophets. They have no power to deliver people from the wrath and from the judgment of God. So God now has defeated the power of Egypt on the only level playing field there is. That was the water. And having done that, now the Lord expands his show of power beyond the comfort zone of the magicians. And the magicians recognize that they are in over their heads. They recognize that by their own confession. And they go to Pharaoh and they say, this is not the arm of God, not the hand of God. This is what? The finger of God. This is just his finger. This is just his finger. They get it. The finger of God, verse 19, who controls even the dust of the earth. Even the dust, the most minute particles. All particles. Subatomic particles. Atomic particles, molecules, DNA. God controls it all. If he can take a speck of dust and turn it into a gnat, he has control over all particles of life. Why? Because he created it all. Does that blow your mind? That just blows my mind. But at the same time, it gives me a tremendous amount of comfort. 
Nothing is out of control. It may seem out of control, but he's got it in control. Even the dust. Verse 19, Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh's response is what? Somebody tell me, what's Pharaoh's response to verse 19? (laughs) There he goes again. Hardened his heart. Now, by the way, you'll notice as we read the account, Nats, there is no mention at all of the cessation of the plague. The Nats may now be a way of life for the Egyptians. Great. Isn't that delightful? Just got to live with gnats and lice continually. Continually itching, scratching, being bitten in your mouth, your nose. Delightful. Let me read to you from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. This is, this is a, the personification of wisdom. When wisdom calls out, it's no less different than when God calls out. And I think it's an applicable passage to this situation with Pharaoh. Verse 24 in Proverbs 1, Since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and troubles overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice, spurn my rebuke. They will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Is there a lesson to be learned there for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Pharaoh hardens his heart, that opens the door for plague number four. The fourth plague is the plague of flies. If gnats weren't bad enough, flies. I don't know about you, one fly is enough to annoy me. (laughs) One fly flying around is enough to get to me. Just one. (laughs) Just one. And then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes out of the water. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may worship me. Can you imagine Pharaoh says, I know, I know, I know, let the people go. So. It's like our kids, I know, Mom, I know, I know. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. Now some, some scholars think that the flies were, were what, what they called dog flies. These were big flies that bite. They bite. Nasty, nasty flies. All over the place. But on the day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live, no swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know, here it comes again, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Ooh, that sounds ominous, doesn't it? 
This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. So get ready, the flies are arriving tomorrow. The Lord did this, and the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace, into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And then Moses left Pharaoh, prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Flies be gone. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. This plague, the fourth plague, is a plague from the air. God shows the extent of his power by releasing on Egypt creatures not only from the water and then the dust, now from the air. God has complete sovereignty. And a number of firsts occur with this fourth plague. First, no staff is involved in bringing the swarm of flies. This is truly a more potent display of God's power. He merely speaks and it happens. God's power doesn't have to be displayed. It doesn't have to be conjured up by the use of a staff like the magicians would do. Secondly, this is also the first plague to make a distinction between God's people and Pharaoh's people. God makes a distinction here. Now, he doesn't make this distinction in the hope that Egypt will turn and be saved. Not at all. Egypt is coming under God's judgment. It is simply that the Egyptians may know that the God of Israel is in their country and he can do as he pleases. Now remember, they have all these gods that govern all these sectors of their, of their, of their environment and of their life, and there's this now God saying, look, I'm here, I can do whatever, I, I'm the biggest, baddest dude around. Thirdly, another first, the flies bring destruction to the land. This is God's purpose, to bring destruction, ruination to the land, in verse 24. This plague takes the Lord's judgment to a new level by giving a preview of the ultimate outcome, destruction. The plagues are going to get more and more severe. Verse 25, how does Pharaoh respond in verse 25? What does it tell us? Anybody? He says, okay, you can go. You can go. You can, you can take and, and, and sacrifice, but where must they sacrifice? Yeah, he can't leave the land. This is the second time that he calls Moses and Aaron. He gives in. He gives in a little bit, but he'll change his mind. And he'll maintain his stubborn stance. He will let the Israelites go to sacrifice, but he will, they will have to remain in Egypt to do so. He's, in effect, demanding that they compromise. There's always a demand to compromise. 
This is not what God intended, and Pharaoh full well knew it. In verse 26, Moses' response is to point out to Pharaoh his own foolishness in his own solution to this problem. You can sacrifice, but sacrifice in the land. Moses said, Pharaoh, that's not very smart of you. Because our sacrifices are going to be detestable to your people and to your religious system. In effect, there are going to be riots as a result because we sacrifice animals that are sacred to you and your people. Not a good idea, Pharaoh. So we should just go. Let us go. We're going to go out into the desert as God commanded us, and we're going to sacrifice. Pharaoh, it's all or nothing. No compromise. It's all or nothing. No compromise. No compromise. And Pharaoh's concession to let the people go, he makes that concession, okay, okay, you can go, but don't go too far. He still wants to maintain control over them. That's only a tactic to get Moses to pray for relief from the flies. He has no intention whatsoever to let them go. Merely a concession to get him to pray. Pharaoh again, verse 32, would harden his heart. He does not yet see that it is easily within the Lord's power to set his people free. When it's all said and done, Pharaoh's role in Israel's release is not even significant. God doesn't need Pharaoh. He raises him up for his purposes. And the Lord will later harden Pharaoh's heart to make that point painfully clear to Pharaoh. God is all-powerful. He has a great purpose for his people. He will bring, and he is bringing judgment. We know that one day. His wrath is being revealed. The Bible talks about it. It's being preached about. People know inherently that there is a wrath to come. But they are turning and ignoring, hardening their hearts. As we read these passages, as we think about God, beloved, I pray none of us would be complacent in our faith. I pray that we indeed would be people who worship him, who honor him, and who respect him, who bless him and obey him. He is an awesome God. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you that you are awesome. Thank you that you are all-powerful. Thank you that it's your power that has set us free. Set us free from the coming plagues that will plague this creation. Thank you for the testimony of Moses and Aaron. Thank you, Lord, for your purpose and your plan. I pray, Lord, that anybody here today who has hardened their heart and has not surrendered to you, God, that they would surrender their life to you. Lord, do a work in their life, I pray. Help them to see that your grace and mercy and kindness to them is that which will lead them to repentance. We love you this morning. We do worship you. And you are the Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.